2020 changed the trajectory of my life forever. I was 24, succeeding in a job that offered huge financial reward, yet I was unhappy and unfulfilled. My chronic illness, cystic fibrosis, had caused my lungs to bleed and it left me in a hospital bed. Now I left that job and created this podcast and I left that hospital bed to run marathons and prove that we aren't defined by our circumstances, but rather how we respond to them. On this show, we discuss the adversity that my guests and I face and how we overcome that adversity. This is a lot to talk about. G'day, g'day. Welcome back to another episode of A Lot to Talk About. It is your boy, the captain of the ship, the man in charge, Bradley J. Driver. Of course, you can call me Brad. I've been very excited ahead of today's interview because the guy that I've got sitting on the other side of the screen, on the other side of the world, I might add, is a man who has an incredible story, whose voice and story deserves to be heard. It's been a blessing for me to hear it and to come across the incredible work that he's now doing and the incredible resilience that this guy has to show for 30 very challenging years behind bars. He's now a free man and rightfully so. So ladies and gentlemen, from your homes, your cars, wherever you are, give a very warm welcome to the one, the only, Mr. Bruce Bryan. How are you, brother? I am great, 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 feeling good, feeling strong. Um, honored to be here, to be able to talk to you and share with your audience. And thank you for having me. And it's a great morning and I feel great. It's I a love great to morning. See it, man. It's beautiful. I hope to God that people are not only listening to this, but watching this because one of the joys for me in hearing your story and connecting with you has to been, has been to see the joy that comes from you every time you speak. There is mm -hmm. a, a zest for life that is hard to miss when in conversation with you, when in hearing your story. And I guess to give the people listening a bit of a recap, I come across you maybe three or four weeks ago now, Bruce, when um, a fellow friend of both of us now, Yannicka, my speaking consultant, sent me a text and said, you have to listen to this interview on Joe Rogan's podcast. A gentleman by the name of Bruce Bryan and his story will move you to tears. And so Yannicka is always great for a recommendation. So I clicked onto the interview and within two hours, I'd been so captivated and so drawn in by your incredible story and more so than your story, but your attitude for life. There's something that you kept saying, oceans of gratitude. And I felt that way very strong in every word that you said and every gesture that you made. And your story is one of incredible significance and um, of incredible power. So you were behind bars for 30 years, wrongly, wrongfully convicted for murder. And you've found yourself now out on the other side, rightfully so, with an incredible story, an incredible mindset, and so much good that you're now doing in the world. It's why it's such a joy for me to have you on here, Bruce. I guess if you can take us back to, you know, over 30 years ago now and talk to us about sort of what your life looked like before prison. I know that you've spoken about the changes that you wanted to make in yourself as a human being. Um, I'm really interested just to hear a little bit about life you know, before all of this happened? Well, for me, I was a young guy that, you know, I had come from two-parent household. Both mother and father were present. Migrated from Antigua, West Indies. And I was the, the last of six children at the time. I, I since have a little brother. Um, and growing up, I was always a happy kid, right? Growing up in New York City. Coming of age in... Um, in Queens, New York, in 1983, 84, is when you started to see um, the onslaught of uh, illicit drugs being sold and in the neighborhoods not far from where I actually resided. And as a result of that, the allure, the little allure of the streets kind of sucks you in a little bit. You kind of get involved on a very small level, um, dipping and dabbing, not once imagining that you know, a, a time would come where you would be uh, uh, falsely accused of something. But for me, I was always good in school, and I, I liked school, but it came very easy to me. School came easy to me, the reading, the writing, uh, even the math at the time, which has since no longer been my favorite subject, but it came easy to me. And 
I always liked people. I always liked being around people. Um, so it was just, it was, it was, it was a process for me um, being pulled away from that because again, I was always around a big family. So I was, I knew what it was like to come up in a household with, with a lot of love, you know, a lot of support and a lot of, you know, smiles and just having a household full of people. But slowly, as I begin to be pulled away from that and, and see the struggle that my parents had financially, I engaged in a little bit of hustling. Hustling is what we call, you know, selling, selling marijuana, you know, stuff like that, cocaine or whatever in the streets. And I think that in and of itself is not something that I actually enjoyed. I actually enjoyed school and reading because I was still dipping dab in my reading. You know, I would still go to the libraries and, and things like that. Um, so it was just, for me, it was just the environment that kind of, you become or somewhat a product of your environment. Mm. Yeah, as opposed to forcing your environment to become a product of you, which is something I learned later on. Um, so as a result of that, I think around the eighth or ninth grade, that's when I really started cutting school or not going to school and stuff. Eventually, I got. I went on and got my GED. Had an arrest as a juvenile before for marijuana and stuff like that, and got out. And just I was working with my father at one time, trying to get my life in order, and doing some of the things that I enjoy doing uh, at my father's job. He has since gone on to pass away in 2017. Sorry to hear that. Yes, but being around him, being around my mother. Those were always the joys of my life and liking that attention from them. So, I, you know, I kind of kept the little job with my father for a short period and started trying to get back into school and doing some of the things that I enjoyed doing. I had even, at that point, I had even registered for college at one point. I was thinking about going back to college prior to getting arrested. Fast forward and, um, you know, I'm suddenly arrested. 1994 for a crime I didn't commit, and uh, I, I, I imagine imagine leaving your house with your uh, with your then girlfriend to change your her niece's costume and and being arrested and kidnapped for the next 29 years. Yeah, so it's, 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 un, it's unfathomable. Um, you never think that being in the wrong crowd or being in the streets or being around or being around certain areas that something like that could actually happen to you. And, you know, prior to that happening to me, it wasn't something that I heard a lot of or people getting wrongly convicted, falsely accused, going to jail for 20, 25 years. It's not something you heard often. Mm. Uh, even, even though it was happening, it wasn't something that my, my young mind can fathom or that I could, could imagine happening to someone close to me or even myself it's that old story right that we hear of things happening see things happening in the world but we always think that won't happen to us that wouldn't yes. be my reality right because that's the things that we hear about in the movies and the tv shows but there you were at 23 put in a situation in which i can imagine you only felt so out of control talk mm -hmm. to me about that day you know, you said that you were going back to the shop to to change your niece's Halloween costume with your girlfriend at the time. Like, what happened on that day to land you in this situation? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you the basics of it because it's still a lot of litigation is still pending regarding my complete exoneration. Yep. But what happened was two guys got into a shooting with each other. Um, uh, one guy pulled out a gun and shot at another guy, and the, and they began to exchange gunfire. And the young person was killed in that process. And as a result of that, they, you know, uh, developed a particular story and addressed it and, and arrested a group of people as if it was a a group thing, um, which is completely which is completely false. And that's how, from that day, that that's how I became, you know, someone that they decided to put inside this this group of guys and arrests. See, so from being 
from being, from being present in a particular area to being um, charged with a crime that happened in that area. Mere presence doesn't make you guilty of a crime. Um, just being in that community, I guess, it's so infested with drugs and stuff like that that they decided that they would grab several guys and make it into a, a, a drug-related gang or something, you know? Mm. And that's what happened. I wound up getting arrested. So I can imagine that when you're sitting in the courtroom and, you know, this trial is underway, does it feel as almost though you're outside of your body experiencing this? Like, how, oh. what does it feel like to be in that situation? It's, it's the most horrific and scariest moments of my existence. Going to trial, going to, going to court each day was, uh, was fearful because while each moment you're saying, okay, um, the truth is going to come out. They're going to let me out eventually. Um, the fact of the matter is you just don't know. Mm. You now, in your particular case, there was a, a prosecutor who had bribed witnesses or bribed a witness. Yeah, former, former Queens prosecutor John Scarper, who has had... Um, a history of engaging in misconduct, um, prosecutorial misconduct, and fabricating evidence who no one knew at the time, or at least I didn't, that this was uh, how he operated. It wasn't until 27 years later when he was kicked out of the Queen's DA's office and was forced to become a defense attorney that he engaged in the same misconduct that he had always engaged in for the last, for his entire career, for over 30 years. Because mm. uh, his misconduct goes back to 1980s, but no one knew about it. It goes back to, no one knew about it except those in the prosecutor's office. It goes back to the 1980s. Um, so he eventually was pushed out and forced to become a defense attorney. And as a defense attorney, you don't have the same, what they call qualified immunity as prosecutors have. So a prosecutor has qualified immunity, so they can send you and I to prison for 20, 30 years and nothing actually happens to them. Mm. They can fabricate evidence and nothing happens to them. Um, they can withhold what we call Brady material, um, which is which is withholding exculpatory evidence to ex that can exonerate a defendant. They can do the, they can engage in this behavior and nothing happens as a prosecutor. When you become a defense attorney, which they're both attorneys, but one's in defense and one is on the uh, for the people, for the state. Once you become a defense attorney, you don't have those same immunities. And once he was pushed out and forced to become a defense attorney, he continued in his behavior of misconduct and fabricating evidence, and subsequently. Uh, John Scarper was arrested and convicted and sent to prison, sent to federal prison, and is no longer in the term. It's just so sad to to think about the reality of that because, you know, I don't know too much about the law outside of watching, you know, a few seasons of Suits or The Good Wife. Mm -hmm. And um, the one thing that I do think would be common sense, though, is that those same behaviours should be enforced in the same ways for both sides of the fence, right? That yes. misconduct should not be accepted in any form of the law. But here we are and here you are 30 years later having paid the price for that misconduct. You know, Bruce, the thing that stood out for me the most, and it's, you know, I've told a lot of people about you in the last couple of weeks. I've been really looking forward to this conversation because I don't know that I've ever spoken to someone or heard someone speak with the same gratitude for life and the same mindset that you have, I will be the first person to put my hand up and say that if I was wrongfully put behind bars for 30 years, I do not think that I would walk around with the same rays of sunshine that come from your body and from your voice. When you speak, my friend, you are just a man who, who has so much joy and happiness when they speak. I just don't know how, you are as positive as you are after the experience you've been through. I did hear though in your story that when you entered the system, 
you made a decision at one point that you were going to be, as you described, a dandelion, someone who thrived in any environment. Talk to me about that decision and and the moments that led to that decision. It wasn't, um, it wasn't an easy decision because initially, initially when you find yourself in that environment, it's, it's, it's depressing. It's, it's extremely depressing. Um, prison is a very volatile environment. Prison is a very cold environment. And I don't just mean physically cold. I mean, cold with respect to heartless, being heartless, being, having a lack of compassion and empathy on both sides. Um, the officers, as well as many of the incarcerated people. So it's a very cold environment and it's a very uh, dark place. And you have to make a decision at some point to not be a part of the darkness and to not be a part of that, 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 that ice cold, but to try to develop your own heat. It's up to you to create your own heat. And the only way that you, for me was to create that was one, to embrace my spirituality and to begin, you know, um, uh, strengthening my faith in God, right? Strengthening my faith in God, um, surrounding myself with the right guides, you know, the old timers from a group called the Resurrection Study Group, prisoners that had been in 20, 30 years prior to me coming in, um, that helped me understand that I had two choices. I could either become bitter or I can become better. And I chose the latter. Um, but you still have to find the resolve within yourself, right? You got to find that resilience to say, all right, these are the decisions I'm going to make. I'm going to um, not cry myself to sleep as much. I'm going to um, not walk the yard and just hang out as much. I'm going to begin focusing on mind, body, and soul, right? So I'm going to develop a, a physical fitness routine. I'm going to develop a spiritual practice, which for me was going to church and, you know, accepting Christ in my life and going to church on, on the weekends and just trusting God. And then I had the blessing was that I had that family support uh, that became the wind beneath my wings, right? That helped me push forward and find out that where I was didn't have to define who I was mm. or who I can. And so. I began to, you know, I began to meditate. I began to write down affirmations um, on the wall. I began to use vision boards. Um, I did whatever it took, reading the scripture. If I took a scripture out the Bible, um, you know, walk by faith and not by sight. And I pin it on my wall, you know, uh, and I began to read it every morning. Then I began to dive into what I enjoyed doing, which was reading, reading books like Man's Search for Meaning by Victor Frankl. Um, uh, the Road Less Traveled by Dr. Scott Peck and reading, you know, reading different books like that, that helped me understand that the the real journey starts within. Mm-hmm. The real journey starts within in, in engaging in deep reflection and introspection and finding out who you are, um, you know, embracing those values you know, reconnecting to those values that your parents instilled in you, right? That you know were true and that help you become who you are. And understanding that this didn't have to be who you are. Prison is not who, is prison is a place that many people find themselves in, even those who are physically not there, right? So there's the prison of drug addiction. There's a prison of, uh, of, of domestic violence, of abuse. Um, there's also the prison of depression and mental health. And, and sometimes there's a prison of our, of our worldview that keeps us uh, captivated inside of these prison walls. They may not be physical, but they could very well be mental. So mm. I realized that I can, I can be incarcerated. However, I can still take, take on the mindset and construct a prison life, a life that allowed me to to thrive despite being behind walls, a life that allowed me to to smile because happiness comes from a much deeper place than a physical location. So these are the things that I- Yes, these are the things that I began to meditate on. I began to meditate on and I found myself 
really embracing, you know, those practices and those principles and just, you know, allowing myself to myself talk to be to be a lot better than where I was, you know. Three incredibly powerful things I take from that are traits of purpose, resilience and perspective. Things that I think no matter what situation you're in as a human being will serve you incredibly well. And I know that they've definitely served me in areas of my life. And it's almost a very stoic mindset of it's not what you're challenged by, but rather how you respond to it. That really stands the test of the outcomes you have in your life. And then you also, you also, um, when you change the way you look at things, things change the way that they look. What's the most valuable asset that we all have as human beings, right? It's time, right? And many people that are not behind prison walls that are free, they don't have time to do some of the things that they want to do. They don't have time to read. Many don't have time to meditate. Some don't have time to exercise. Many of them don't take the time to reflect and engage in introspection. So what I had was the most valuable commodity there is. I had time. So either I was going to serve time or I was going to have time serve me. And I chose the latter, to have time serve me. So I began managing my time and realizing that I have this time. It's about utilizing it to the best of my benefit. So the cell that I locked in, you know, I didn't see it as a, a simply a cell. I seen it as a place where, where I can pray, as a place where I can study, and a place where I can reflect my downtime. When I stepped out, you know, I went to the gym or to the yard. It was it was for a, a specific purpose, to work out or to use the phone. And I did just that. I used it as an exercise time, as well as a time to connect with family or my lawyers and find out what was going on with my my case on the outside. Um, and of course, when you go into to other areas like the academic area in the mm-hmm. school or the vocational area in the school, you go there with a specific purpose of getting educated, um, going to working on being better every single aspect of my life and every single hour of the day, right? And taking that and realizing in the back of my head, I got, you know how many people in what we call the free world wish that they had the time to do some of the things that they want to do that can help make them better. So I decided to take that time and use that commodity. Mm, Beautifully said, brother. I have to ask, when you talk about going and and educating yourself and doing the reading and doing the study, I know that you come out of prison with some degrees. Was that study quite specific in certain areas or was a lot of the time just around just educating you on the world and lived experience and, you know, just grabbing gems of wisdom from all areas of life? Well, for me, it was grabbing gems of wisdom from all walks of life uh, while simultaneously getting myself involved in formal education and earning my associate's degree in liberal arts, humanities, and then going on to get my bachelor's in behavioral science and then uh, preparing for a master's course and taking uh, New York theological studies. So I took a one-year intense study on, on theology in the study of God, in the study of scripture, in the study of spirituality. And I just took every single course that prison actually had to offer. And because I, you know, I got something from it. While at the same time, doing my independent studies, reading the New York Times, um, reading uh, periodicals, magazines, uh, books, things that I probably would have never picked up before in my life, I decided to pick up because I was curious and I, and because I also had the time, I had the time to look into, you know, what it meant to, um, travel, travel a road that that was, that was a lot less travel, what it meant to pick up the book, the secret and read it and, and learn about the law of attraction and then go back into history and learn uh, about Egyptology, right? Learn about what the Egyptians, some of the most fascinating people, um, have done, right? And learning about the people from Mali, the Dogon people from Mali, Africa, and reading my history and learning that I come from a rich history that, you know, my ancestors have sacrificed so much for me. And the reality is we are a, uh, we are a makeup of our ancestors' DNA, 
that DNA hasn't changed, so it's in us. That same resilience, those resilient DNA traits that existed in my mother, my father, and my grandparents and their parents, um, it's all passed down from generations. So tapping into that and knowing that makes a difference. Yeah, I love that. I have to ask, is it hard to focus in prison? Because, you know, from the outside looking in, I've not experienced prison. I do assume, though, that I can't imagine it. It always allows you to live in a state of peace. You know, it feels like at times it would be a volatile environment. Is it really hard to focus and feel relaxed? It's hard to focus. It's hard to feel relaxed. Um, because it's a very volatile, a very dangerous, um, and a very violent place. It's, it's a daily diet of ignorance, right? Um, and the average person doesn't go to prison with the idea of becoming better. Prison is designed to make you worse. It's not designed to make you better. They all know um, prison doesn't rehabilitate anyone. It doesn't corrections. Uh, correctional departments don't correct any behavior. It's up to you to make a conscious decision to say, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm not going to do. These are the people that I'm going to surround myself with. If I surround myself with anyone, and these are the people I'm going to stay away from. Prison is uh, flooded with gangs, uh, violence, on both sides, violence from the officers, violence from the incarcerated people. So prison is it's, it's extremely hard to focus because there's so much uh, madness going on around you and it's easy to get sucked in. Like guys, I've seen guys get blamed for crimes in prison that they didn't commit. You know, they, they, a guy gets might get stabbed or, or cut and the wrong guy might be apprehended for it because the officer in the tower didn't see exactly who did it. Mm. So he just picked anyone. So the same thing, prison is a microcosm of what exists in society, what exists in the margins of society, the poor inner city ghettos, right? Those things exist inside of prison. So from drugs to weapons to, to, to drug dealing, to violence, to, to robberies, um, extortion, uh, you know, and even in some cases, uh, a, a rape, um, all of these things exist behind prison bars mm. today. So it's it's very, you know, it's, it's really about being on your P's and Q's and being completely having a heightened awareness. And that's, that's what I, that's what I came home with a very heightened awareness of my surroundings, because in prison, you're always looking around to find out what's going on around you. Yeah. I can imagine that makes it difficult being even on the outside now without awareness, you wouldn't be able to dial it down as easy as maybe you'd like. I even know my dad was a police officer for 11 years in the local area here. And we go to a restaurant to have dinner and dad has to sit in the corner of the restaurant so he can see everything that's happening around him. It's like, well, a, I, do the, yeah. I, I do something similar. Yesterday, my lawyer took me to a, a a Mexican restaurant and he was sitting to the back and my, this, the next seat for me was towards the people coming in. And I, I looked at him and asked him, it's funny you brought that up. I looked at him and asked him, I says, I want to sit on that side with you. Hmm. I want my, I want, in other words, I wanted my back to the wall, which is um, something that you practice in prison, something you practice in prison. Especially myself, um, you know, being that I was actually I was actually slashed from behind while prison, so I received this mark from prison from being slashed from behind. So, you know, being conscious of all of these things that take place and being in there for so many decades, you kind of normalize a certain behavior, you adapt certain behavior um, for safety precautions, for safety measures, and you know, being home a few months after uh, so many years incarcerated, you kind of like, you know, the, the creatures of habit. So you still have those, those little habits of being aware and protecting yourself. Yeah, of course. I can imagine that would be hard to shake. 
Talk to me about the day-to-day of, of prison. Is prison very routine from Monday to Sunday or yes. is there different days, different measures? Talk me through what that's like. It's pretty routine in that you wake up six in the morning and an officer comes around like a waiter and asks you, well, what are you doing today? He has like a clipboard. And you may say, I'm going to school or I'm going to the yard or I'm going to breakfast. It's mundane. It's the same day. But it's the same thing. But you know that once you step out that cell, anything can happen every mm. day. So you can you could be on your way to school and the prison gets locked down because someone was just stabbed in the yard and killed, which has happened countless times throughout my incarceration. You might I might be in the law library researching cases and an alarm goes off. And the officers come and say everybody has to go. And you say, why? Well, there's just a, there's a, there's two people who just were stabbed and we're closing the jail because we don't, you know, it's a gang, it's a gang war. Mm. So so that's the that's the volatility of incarceration, right? That's the, you know, anything can happen at any given moment. And you become aware of that. You become you almost become expect it to happen. Mm. What so do you basically do you dictate the the course of your day or are there specific times you have to do things and then you have to go back to your cell? Or is it kind of once you're out and about, you're out and about and then you go back at no. night? No, several times a day you have to be in yourself for what they call a facility count. Okay. Where they count person. So you have to be in yourself at a specific time for that. Hmm. Who was it? Was there anyone in prison who become quite a mentor? I remember having a gentleman on my podcast a year and a half ago now. His name's Jeffrey Morgan. Um, he lives here in Australia, just lives up in Sydney, and Jeff spent I believe 15 to 20 years in prison for bank robbery. And Jeff's done an incredible job of rehabilitating himself in prison. He studied, he learned very similar to what you did. He made a a commitment after meeting a mentor who really opened his eyes to what he could use this time to do. And he chose to use it wisely. And he's come out of prison. He's doing an incredible job in really helping the community and where he grew up. He grew up in quite a challenging part of of Sydney, Everly Street in Redfern, which is, you know, quite consistently ridden with crime and, and mm-hmm. challenging, um, I guess, challenging circumstances for a lot of the young folk that come from there. And um, Jeff's done some incredible things, but he spoke very highly of a mentor who really gave him the opportunity to step outside of himself at the time. And and make a change and evolve as a human being. And, you know, I know that the resurrection study group was a big part of your journey, but was there someone in particular who really reached your soul? Yeah, you had several gentlemen. One in particular is Stanley Bellamy, um, a brother by the name of Jamal. Uh, He was from the same Queens uh, borough where I'm from. And he was always a positive person and always willing to extend himself to help younger brothers coming through the system. And he definitely had an impact on my life. He definitely helped me grow in a lot of different ways. And also you had guys like um, like Joseph Robinson, who's he and I are the same age. When I came through um, Greenhaven, he was already on the right path. And these guys encouraged me to get involved and to take the classes that they were taking. One of the things I realized in prison is it was never the programs that were created by the institution that helped me. It was always the programs that were created by incarcerated people mm. who out to teach a class or who decided that when they went home, they wanted to create a college program where uh, incarcerated people would be would get funds. There would be an organization that funds our education and we bring in college professors so we can get a real degree and really get the college experience the same experience that college students get at, you know, at campus. Um, these are all programs created by us for us. They were created by incarcerated or formerly incarcerated people. And those were the ones that had the greatest benefit for me. Yeah. It's a really interesting point you make, Bruce, because I, I think about whether, I don't know whether it happens in Australia or not, but I can imagine that over there, the rate of people who are, 
convicted and then get reconvicted and find themselves back in the prison system would be pretty high. I know it's very similar here in Australia. And I wonder whether that's due to a lack of purpose outside of the prison system. Like if you, if you go into prison and you don't have something to study or to learn, or you don't have a way to find a path that will suit you outside of prison, like, what do you do? You do what you know, right? You do what you know. The creatures of habit, you return to the things that you've known your whole life. Um, in the United States, 60% of people that are released from prison are still jobless like one year later. So imagine if you live in New York or any of the states and you're home for one year and you can't get employed because of all the barriers that are placed before you because of your felony, because of your conviction. So what happens is you, you, you wind up going back to what you're used to and you wind up failing again. Right? That's why the recidivism rate is so high. When you have some 650,000 people being released from jails and prisons in the United States every year, some 650,000, when you talk about 60% of that, one year later, they still don't have a job. Um, close to 70% of those people, um, three years later, they may very well return to prison. It's mm. yeah, it's it's a rough statistic, isn't it? Because it it speaks volumes of the problem that I think most countries would have. I don't know if there's any countries you've identified or that you know your um your lawyer and friend Josh has identified in which they've found a system that works really well in rehabilitating um people who are in prison. Have you found or heard of any? Well, I think that now. Uh... Well, here's what I would say. Higher education in prison is has has shown to be a remedy to address recidivism. Um, the more education you get while you're incarcerated, the less likely you are to come back to prison. Mm. So, so, so the guys that go to prison and earn a bachelor's degree or earn a master's degree, um, recidivism for them is it's, it's, you know, maybe you're talking 2%, one or 2% of those guys actually come back to prison. While guys that don't get an education in New York City, the recidivism rate is something like 46%. Yeah, well, that's scary. And, and, when, and when I talk about recidivism, I'm talking about returning to prison within three years of being released. Um, and oftentimes being jobless one year after being released. Now, if you now if you ask yourself if I'm if you're if if Brad is selling uh, if Brad is selling cars or computers, um, and within the first three years of you selling that car or that computer, it has to be returned to you to be fixed again because something is wrong with it. Um, Brad's business will go out of, um, would fail because if 60 or 70% of your items have to be returned to you because they have some defect or something is wrong with them three years later, your business would fail. But in here in America, the prison industrial complex has managed to thrive based on failure. Mm. You see? So, so when a person goes into prison, and the prison promises rehabilitation, that we would correct the behavior that you once engaged in. And they don't correct that behavior. So within the first three years of you being released, you're, you've already resorted back. Sometimes in the first three months, you've already resorted back to the same behavior, which you know best, right? Which led you to prison in the first place. Then the prison has failed to address the needs of that particular individual, right? But prison thrives in America based on failure. Well, probably the only business that that thrives off of failure with uh, with regard to um, 
with regard to human life, or maybe even with the exception of uh, uh, dating apps, maybe dating apps drive up for those failed those fail relationships, so people keep coming back trying to get another relationship. But um, that's prison, right? That's prison in America. It's designed to do just what it's doing, create a permanent underclass and a permanent marginalized group of people. It's 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 really up to you to make to develop that mindset and say, I'm going to thrive no matter what. I'm going to uh, I'm going to find my way through the cracks of the concrete and try to thrive and make a make a life for myself despite the countless challenges against me, despite the system being designed for me to fail. Right? If if prison in America wanted people to succeed, then they would have. Um, programs that address human development, the programs that address mental health issues inside of these institutions to uh, ensure a, a level of success when a person is released. Hmm. See? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's an incredible point you make, Bruce. One of the things that stood out to me as a, as a real issue in addressing that was your mention of how many of the prisons in the US are privately owned. I know yes. in Australia, I believe Yannicka and I spoke about this. I think it's only around 15 prisons in Australia are privately owned, um, which is obviously quite a small amount. But over there, it seems like it's, it's quite a large amount of the prisons that you have are privately owned, not government owned. Yes. And yeah, so that well, becomes a business. But but it is it's even even the ones that are government owned are, are a business. Um, it's not just the privately owned prisons that are business. The government owned prisons are a business uh, because they're making products off of cheap labor. So yeah, talk to me prison, about this. In one of the prisons I was in, they were making furniture. Um, where that furniture goes, the state begins to sell it. Right? Um, there's a thing called Corecraft. That's the company that owns all the prison products c-o-r-c-r-a-f-t it's on the united states stock market right prisoners are paid literally maybe 25 cents an hour or 10 cents an hour to produce things like hand sanitizer when the pandemic happened um, prisoners new york state corrections produce hand sanitizer so if so prison is cheap labor, whether it's government owned or privately owned, uh, they may be more exploited when they're privately owned because there's a lack of oversight, right? Mm. Where, there's a, where there's a lack of oversight, of course, you're going to have people exploited even more. Uh, there's, actually, there's actually an interesting documentary called Kids for Cash that, um, that talks about some judges in Pennsylvania here in America that were actually sending kids to jail deliberately because the privately owned prison promised them um, a kickback in wages if they kept the, the jails at an 80% capacity because it was necessary for them to keep it at 80% capacity for the people who developed this private prison in order for it to show the need for its existence. The need for his existence means that you, you know, you have a need, so you have to have a supply and demand, right? So there was a demand for children to be incarcerated. And these judges provided that supply by sending young people to jail uh, and prisons who had um, for minor infractions. But it helped keep those private prisons full at 80% capacity. And th these judges were paid, were, were, were rewarded. Um, significant amounts of money for helping these private prisons to run it's called kids for cash if you ever get a chance look look it up mm. it's, it should be on, it should be on youtube and stuff like that um, yeah, I'll, I'll look into that that's it's really sad to hear and the thing that i wonder is you know imagine if those because I've, I've heard you talk about how crafty and how skilled some of these inmates are who are creating these things and making these products and and it's quite a skill set. Like I think you spoke about at one point in time, making things with timber or with steel. And mate, I'm the least handy person you'll ever meet. I'm lucky that I know how to talk because that's how I'm going to make my living. 
um, but I'm the least handy person you'll meet. And I think imagine if those, those inmates were compensated correctly and paid correctly for the work that they were doing in prison. It would give them the foresight to say that maybe there's a life outside of here for me in which I, I work as a carpenter or a bricklayer or as a fabricator and, and get myself, you know, and even to be able to obtain the correct qualifications inside of prison so that when they leave, there are job opportunities for them. Yeah, but not only that, that's the, that's the main cause of people coming into, um, people come to prisons because of the social conditions that they live in. Like mm. Poverty. Poverty is something that breeds crime. Unless a person is suffering from mental health, right? Which is a whole other issue, right? Prisoners in the United States have become the number one places to find people suffering from mental illness because so many of the psychiatric hospitals have been closed and prisons don't help um, people with mental health issues. They simply exacerbate the mental health issues, right? So these people squander for decades in prisons. Uh, being medicated uh, off of generic medicine and just managing to stay alive, right? Uh, when you look at uh, the vast majority of people in prisons come from specific neighborhoods that are marginalized. So if these neighborhoods, if they, they were provided with the necessary resources, uh, livable wages, not a minimum wage, but a livable wage, a wage by which someone can feed a family and provide for themselves, um, then you wouldn't see the prisons as, 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 as packed as they are in America. You wouldn't have two point something million people in prison because social conditions, uh, they produce crime. There are things that we call crime generative factors that exist in poor communities of color, right? And this is, and, and the number one crime generative factor that exists in poor communities is poverty itself. Poverty helps drive crime. No one is born, um, for the most part, the vast majority of us are not born with this thing that's uh, with a criminal gene, right? We come into, we're, we're born into conditions that uh, where we are surrounded by crime generative factors. So it's dilapidated communities, it's inferior education, poor schooling, right? Um, Poor health care, because what you eat and what you consume helps develop your mindset, right? So we, all of these things generate crime, right? All of these things generate crime, but the number one, of course, is poverty. And that's why I will always say that poverty is violence, right? When you don't know where your next meal is coming from, that's violent. When you don't know where your next, um, where, where, where your shelter is coming from. Is violent when you have children who need resources, who need food to eat, and you can't provide for them in the way that you want to. It's violence. Well, it may not be physical violence, but it's psychologically violent to not know how you're going to be able to take care of your family day to day. You see, and okay. to know that, and to know that you're suffering in a system that is designed, that is embedded with um, systemic racism, that. Um, that exploits black and brown people to its benefit and leaves them behind, right? It's, 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 it's what we see happening since the beginning of history. It's what we see happening in Africa today, right? In, in, in Burkina Faso, where there's been a coup d'etat because people have been tired of so much of the resources being sucked out of a wealthy land and nothing being given back to a wealthy, to a wealthy land, right? So you take, 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 and all the resources that you get out of a person while you leave this person to squander in extreme poverty. Yeah, it's, it's such a sad reality and it's, it just needs to be changed on a major scale, doesn't there? And, it, and I think it's a big part of it is conversations like this. That's conversations like this that highlight the fact that they're, not only is a problem, but something needs to be done about it. Like it's one thing to recognize it. It's another thing to act in a way in which we can hopefully resolve some of these problems and move in the right direction. I understand that that's a big part of your mission now is to, to help these communities, to make a difference in these communities. What does that look like on, on a day-to-day -day level for you? On a day-to-day -day level for me, it's, 
taking the opportunities to sometimes go by and go speak to a community of children of incarcerated parents and help them understand how important it is that they don't make some of the poor decisions that their parents made, right? So we want to break the cycle of intergenerational incarceration. Um, also working with a, um, a nonprofit that a young man that was incarcerated developed called Hood Code. Hood Code NYC. What Hood Code does is it's designed to create um, coding labs in all impoverished communities in, in, in public housing in New York City. So a guy can start learning. So young people that come from marginalized communities can learn how to code. And coding can start them off with a, a salary that would instantly break generational poverty. Mm -hmm. So it means getting involved in sharing those visions and the ideas of nonprofits, because I think when you talk about the nonprofit sector that address some of the social ills in society, it's those, uh, these are some of the things that can begin to make those small changes. If we all do a little something in some way, and then speaking engagements and, and talking about what we can and cannot do and sharing the thoughts, because when you begin to normalize the conversation around mental illness, it removes the stigma associated with it when you normalize the conversation, right? And we let people know that it's okay to seek help and it's okay for us to help our brothers and our sisters who are, who are struggling with mental health because it's going to take all of us to help the rest of us, right? And that's yeah, what it's that. going to take. The, the reality is it's all of none. And if we really mean that it's all or none, we have to, um, as 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 Mrs. Carter would say, Jay Z's mother, we have to lift as we climb. We have to lift as we climb, and that is the motto of the Sean Carter Foundation. And that's something that we have to live by: normalizing these conversations, getting involved, um, educating our next generation of leaders and doing everything that we can to try to make a difference in our own lives so that we can contribute more into the lives of others. Look at the young man, look at the young brother like yourself. What you're doing is extraordinary, right? Um, I've met countless um, young 27-year-old gang members in prison who, you know, come from single-parent households. Some come up in foster care. Some were abused as young people. And you know, they, they, they're left into a system where no one's grabbing a hold of them or trying to teach them anything. So they're left in gang wars, thinking that life is about, you know, just being in a gang and, and, and fighting and killing and, and, and being involved in illicit drug dealing, um, which has gotten them nowhere. Right? It's It's just so powerful that you are the person who gets to speak to them now. I... I know that there is such a thing that as human beings, when we recognize someone who has genuine lived experience in an area in which we take interest in or fall within that interest circle for a young man or young woman who is on the streets and is involved in crime to hear you come out of the prison system after 30 years, knowing what, you know, having evolved and transformed yourself in the way that you have to hear your words are far more powerful than, than the average Joe who speaks those words on the streets because you've been through that struggle. You've lived it. Yeah. It was your life for 30 years. And for you to be able to speak to them, I can imagine just moves mountains. It's really exciting for me that you've taken this purpose on board. I just, yes. I just feel so encouraged and excited because as, as a young guy who has his own mission in life to, to help people who, you know, need to be uplifted and inspired to overcome their challenges. I'm really excited for the people who are going to hear your message and whose lives will be changed because it will be countless. And I, I want to talk quickly, Bruce, about, you know, I've seen this incredible clip of you walking outside of the walls of prison and embracing your family. Yes. What a moment that was, you know, I was sitting in my room when I was watching that on Spotify on Rogan's podcast and just tears, man, straight away. Cause it's such a powerful moment. I have the most 
beautiful and incredible family. I'm sure you would say the same about yours that I just love and cherish so dearly. Like they mean the world to me. I, I'm an emotional cat, Bruce. And when I talk about my family, it always gets me emotional. So to see that was really powerful for me. I can imagine that that was just an incredible feeling. And I've heard you speak about it with such elation. But I have to wonder that after those, you know, first moments in which you're back out in the world and you're back with your people and you can smell the freedom in the air and just life is at your at your fingertips. How has it been mentally for you? You know, we, we touched on mental health, but your life has gone from a place in which you existed in a cell block for 30 years and, and had a, a life inside a prison with hopes of what the future could hold and, you know, hopes for what every day would look like to develop yourself. But man, you've walked out of prison. You've been on the Joe Rogan podcast. You've you know, been having these incredible experiences, connecting with people from all walks of life, from all over the world to share your story. And you deserve that, let me tell you. But how has that been to handle? Like it's it's such a change. It's 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 surreal. Sometimes, sometimes it doesn't even feel real. It doesn't feel real sometimes. Um, but I find myself waking up excited every day and knowing that I can embrace my family and see them every day. That excitement doesn't hasn't dissipated, and and I'm not sure it ever will because, like yourself, um, my family is something that I cherish, that I value. But not just my biological family, my friends, like my lawyer, Josh Dubin. Like, I love this guy. This is my brother. Like, I love um, having good quality people around me, man. And, you know, and now you're one of my friends. Janica is one of my friends. So I value that and because life is about relationships. Mm. It's about relationships. And there's an energy even just talking to you now is the energy that we connected on even besides the podcast, besides this being something that we're trying to share with the people, right? There's an energy that I'm getting from you and that I hope that I'm giving to you that, you know, we're all connected. And the sooner we realize that, you know, that how connected we are as human beings, we're part of the human family and we can recognize the humanity in each other. We realize, man, that, at the very core of who we are, we are just one big family and we should want to see each other thrive. We should want to see each other be better and do better, right? We should want to, you know, raise each other up to high expectations and, and just try to pull one another because life is so much more beautiful when we're together as opposed to when we're apart. Yeah. It's, it's so important what you're saying. I actually read a study yesterday in it that talked about loneliness. It said that one in three people report loneliness in their life. Um, it spoke about the fact that um, the UK has actually appointed a, a secretary for loneliness within mm. um, the health sector of the government that over in the US, um, they've declared loneliness a pandemic. You know, we have a real issue with disconnection. And, mm -hmm. and it raises a really really interesting question for me because you've had this unique perspective, Bruce, in which the time in which you entered prison, we just started to engage in a world in which a mobile phone was the thing. Um, mm -hmm. But since that mm -hmm. moment, you know, life has changed dramatically. And we seem to think that we're more connected than, than ever. And in some ways we are because you and I are sitting on opposite sides of the world right now, and I can see that it's a beautiful sunny day in Long Island. And you, know, you probably can't tell much by the white wall behind me, but it was an incredible day here in Wollongong, Australia. And so we have these new styles of connections, but more people than ever report to be lonely. More people are challenged by mental health than we've ever seen, or at least um, we're more aware of that now. I just wonder what you've noticed about the world and the condition of the world stepping back out 30 years later is that while technology connects us it's designed to suck us in in a way that we're distracted from actually feeling and seeing and touching each other um in, on an emotional level because we're so connected to our devices um, when i get on a train in the morning on my way to work people's heads are down right in their phones um, sometimes 
sometimes I try to observe and see what's around me. And it's amazing because it's almost like you're not there, right? It's almost like you're not there. So what I do is, what's cathartic for me is, I try to speak to people. I try to say hello. I try to say good morning. Uh, so we can still continue to see each other as human beings, right? Mm. As, a, to, as opposed to just people who are disconnected. We are connected by our, human, by our shared humanity. And I think that at this podcast is like, your, like yours. It helps us continue to push the envelope and help us understand that technology is designed to do one or two things or you can utilize it for one or two things you can utilize it as a source of entertainment or you can utilize it as a source of empowerment right i try to utilize it as a source of empowerment that's why we're speaking now on two different sides of the world mm, yeah beautifully so said I think, I think i think more people need to understand that it's not about entertainment it's about empowerment and utilizing it for the right tools. Not saying that we can't be ent entertained for a moment, but yes, let's utilize it for the right things to empower one another. Yeah, I love that. Such a great point. And, you know, I'm, I'm almost worried. Like I have, a, I have a really good group of friends, Bruce. One of the things that I've, I'm very blessed to say that I've never struggled with is I have really good people around me. I have a great partner, I have great family, really great mates that I consistently see and speak to. But I still make an effort when I'm I love that. somewhere. I love new. that term. Not to cut you off. I love that term. Mates. Mates. I learned about being home. <laughs> I learned that this is the lingo that they use in Australia. And I appreciate it. I like I had to learn that. I, I like that. I like that. Mate, we're very different here. When you come over here, I'll, I'll actually I'll share something funny with you. I was over in LA in New York in October last year. Went on a little solo trip by myself. And I went and spent a week in LA, a week in New York. And sometimes I felt like I was speaking a completely different language because someone would look at me and think, you could just tell they had no idea what I was saying. I can be a little bit guilty yeah. of speaking with a lot of slang, a lot of Australian yes. slang. And sometimes I'd order a coffee in the morning and it took people a little while to get used to me. So I'd go to the same cafe because I was like, they're kind of used to me now. And, and eventually people pick up on it, but I find it really fascinating when I go somewhere, I always make an effort to connect with people. Like if I'm ordering a coffee, I'm going to ask the, the barista how their day is. I'm going to ask them what they've been up to, what their morning's been like, you know, what's happening in their world. Like I want to hear stories from people. I'm a, I'm a storyteller. I love storytelling and that's how I connect. That's why I started the podcast. Like I started this. 200 episodes ago, just because I wanted to reconnect with a childhood passion in storytelling. Like I always loved this as a kid and I, I'd found myself sucked into the corporate world and in a job that wasn't really fulfilling me or giving me any, any joy, passion, purpose. And so I decided to set up a podcast and I started interviewing people and it started quite locally with, you know, my first guest was a, as an army veteran who had started a business here in Wollongong and and I just fell in love straight away with this idea that connection and conversation was really powerful. And mm -hmm. here we are now connecting on really big stories and connecting across the world <laughs> with people. Good morning. Good morning. I'm good. <laughs> I'm doing a podcast with a guy in Australia, Bradley. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> G'day. How you going? Yes. He said, how you doing? Hi. Hey, how you doing? We're just talking about yeah, connection and people. So this is very fitting. Yeah. Oh yeah, he fits right in. He does. He does. He's a good man. Yeah. Um. Are you ready to go soon? Yes. Is that what you're wearing, riding? No, I got I got some more stuff up there. Okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. Um, going riding today. Yes, I got to get on the horse. I've never been on one, so I'm going to uh, experience that today. Have you watched Yellowstone yet? No. No, I've watched that before in prison. The one with Kevin Costner? Yes. I like it. Yes. Very Yellowstone of you on the horse yeah. today, horseback. Yeah. Brother, I want to let you go because I want to let you go and embrace the day horseback out in nature. Um, what yeah. an incredible day. But what I want to ask you before you go 
is I want to ask you if you could share one message with everyone who's listening and everyone who's connecting now with your story, maybe for the first time and hopefully not for the last. What's one message you can impart on everyone here to go and make the most of their life and truly embrace the incredible opportunity that they have to live every day? I think the one of the things I would say is it, it all starts with self-love. It all starts with the love of self because it's the most empowering thing that you can do as a human is to love yourself. And when you do that, you begin to see the humanity in other people that look like you. And let's understand that we're all connected. We're all a part of the human family and we can always lift as we climb and try to pick someone up each day because there's no need for a planet with 8 billion people that one person should feel lonely. So let's, you know, let's open up our hearts and open up our eyes when we see someone that we don't know and say good morning, say hello and share a smile. It's easier to share a smile and a kind word than it is to share anything negative. I love that brother down under, we call that just saying g'day. So my man, it's been an absolute blessing, not only to connect with you and share your story, but rather just to get familiar with um, the love, the passion, the joy that you have for life and, and to share that with you now as mates. I'm really excited for people to hear this conversation. Um, I'm really excited to continue the conversation with you outside of the podcast world and in the future. And I'm excited to stand beside you on stage one day and, and share your story alongside you. So thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate you. And um, this is just the beginning. We're going to, you know, we're going to build this his friendship and keep it going, you know? A hundred percent. We are my brother. Yes. My man, have, have, a, have a great day. Have a blessed day. I'll talk yeah. to you soon. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of a lot to talk about. It means the world that you guys are in my corner, that you continue to listen to the show every week. And if you could do me a massive favor by following the podcast on whichever platform you listen to it and sharing this episode in particular with just one friend that you feel would benefit from it, that would mean the world to me and it would help the show grow. The more the show grows, the bigger the guests we get on, the more that we can do and the more we can share and support you guys, the listeners, the viewers of the show. Before I go, I wanna pay my respects and recognize the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet and record this podcast. The Aboriginal culture has such a rich history in storytelling and as a passionate storyteller, I really hope that the stories we share and connect with on the show can allow the many cultures that now call this beautiful land Australia their home to come together and continue to respect the stories and the culture that make this the land it is today. Thank you so much for tuning into A Lot To Talk About. I'll catch you next week.